We're back in the book of Matthew, Matthew 22. This morning our text is verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Please follow along as I read God's holy word. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into any outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, in Sunday school today, Brother Noe read from Isaiah 40 that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is your ever-enduring word before us. I pray that we would take that very seriously. Please open our eyes and our hearts to understand and apply these truths you have before us today. Pray in Jesus' name. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. As you're finding your seats, I'd ask you to keep your Bibles open and also I encourage you to have your outline nearby. Hopefully you grabbed one on your way in. We're back in the book of Matthew. You've been with us for a while. It's been a while since we've been here. Where we typically go through a book from the beginning to the end, but we took a couple of breaks. We were in um, a series on different ways the epistles looked at the incarnation in the book of or in the month of December. And then January through last week, we were doing a worldview series. So let me compliment you by still being with us after that worldview series. That was, uh, that was heavy. There were definitely uh, weeks where we had people coming up to us, wow, I wish I would have heard that years ago, and people come up to us, that hurt, pastor. It, it was heavy. So I'm thankful that you were able to endure as we went through God's word. Sometimes the word is a sword that we use to fight the enemy, and sometimes the word is a sword that God uses to pierce us and, and show us where we need to shape up and get in line with him. So now we're back in Matthew. 
And by uh, God's grace, we will stick with Matthew till we get to the end sometime later this year. Uh, Roman numeral one is a review of where we've been because it has been a while. If we look back to chapter 21, the beginning of chapter 21, that was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We usually refer to that as Palm Sunday. Wonderful passage that I bet most of our kids could tell us some of the truths about that account as the, the citizens of Jerusalem lay their palm branches down as Jesus enters, not on a huge, white, powerful war horse, but on a humble donkey. Comes into town, and as the people lay down their palm branches, they chant, Hosanna to the Son of David. That Hosanna, it's probably good that we remind ourselves Hosanna was a political phrase. So by saying Hosanna to the son of David, they recognized Jesus as a Messiah. But their worldview of Messiah was very small. Their vision of the Messiah would be Jesus as the son of David. He has rightful claim to the throne. He can be the one that releases us from this Roman bondage we're in. And we can finally be our own independent nation again. Jesus can be our king. He can sit on that throne where Solomon was for 40 years. And then he can pass it on and we can move on with life. They had a Messiah in view of a temporal king for a temporal time that would give us political freedom. As we move forward in the account, when Jesus reveals a little deeper the true purpose of his being the Messiah, the crowds will go in less than a week from crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him. Crucify him. And that's where we're at. We are... As we're moving forward from this point on, this is the last week of Jesus' life. I heard many years ago that the, the gospel accounts are not really biographies. They're really stories of the Passion Week with a long introduction. And I think that's a pretty good way of looking at these gospels. It's really all about the cross. And now we're at that week where everything is pointing to the cross. Those last two parables we talked about, letter B, the parable of the two sons, where we have the one son who says, Father, I will not obey you. But then later his heart is changed and he repents. And then we have the other son who says, oh yes, Father, I'll do everything you say. But in reality, he did the opposite. Jesus tells us what that means. The first son who started so rebellious but then repented, those are the people that you Jews don't like. They're the tax collectors. They're, they're the worst of the worst. And yeah, they're bad, but they're repenting. But then you chief priests and you Pharisees, you say with your mouth, you follow God, but your actions are so far, your heart is so far from God. You've got these glimpses that those people that think they're owed the kingdom, are in for a rude awakening. In the last parable, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, those who, who were so horrible, they actually ended up killing the son of the landowner. I think we all know where that's pointing. That brings us today 
Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast. This is about a king. I have never for a single day of my life been under the rule of a king. But I know what that's like. I know enough about history. I know enough about other nations that I know what it's like to have a king. And I know, at least historically speaking, what it's like to be under a king. So I'm not sure if any of you come from those type of kingdoms or if you're like me and you come from places where there's presidents or stuff like that. But I bet we can all understand the basics of this analogy before we get into it. We have a king. It's very important. Look at the first words of verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like. Important that we remind ourselves. This is a parable, not an allegory where there's a ton of different meanings it's a parable about one thing, and the opening words tell us that one thing that we're supposed to learn has something to do with the kingdom. Kingdom of heaven is like, it's like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. We say the word gospel all the time as Christians. Let's remind ourselves that the word gospel existed before the incarnation. So the word gospel, I think a lot of us know, the word gospel means good news. So we as Christians, we recognize when we say the gospel, we talk about the very best news. The good news of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ for sinners. But before Jesus came, there were good news announcements. And a very, very typical good news announcement would be good news for the king. So if you were in the king's kingdom, the king's domain, if the king thought something was good news, it was your responsibility as somebody in his kingdom to also agree, yes, that's good news. So this would be a gospel. The king is telling his kingdom good news. Good news, everyone in my kingdom. My son's getting married. I am going to celebrate this as king, and I expect everyone in the kingdom to celebrate with me. And again, the people of this era would have known the importance of the king throwing a wedding feast for his son getting married. And as we continue looking, verse 3, he sends out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. If you get an invitation to the wedding throne by the king for his son, you're not busy that day. Whatever your plans were, they changed the second you got that invitation. There is nothing more important for me today than going to the wedding. I've been invited by the king himself to a wedding throne by the king for his offspring. This matters I should be there. And again, everybody listening to this parable knew that. End of verse 3. They were not willing to come. This story progresses very, very fast. There's a king. There's a wedding. People didn't come. You're, you're, you're hearing a parable. You're hearing that. You're going, oh, somebody's in trouble situation moves forward. My son wants to preach today. Do you guys hear that? 
I was going to preach loud today anyway because it's daylight savings day and I know some of us are prone to, we lost that hour of sleep. My son lost a couple hours of sleep. I'm going to go loud to keep us all awake, okay? If my son preaches better than me, I'll stop and we can listen to him. But for now, let's look at verse 4. So here's, a, here's the mercy of the king. He sends out a second invitation in verse 4. Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner my oxen and, my, and the fatted cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. So this is not the RSVP stage. This is the it's ready now. Maybe you forgot today's the day. The wedding is there. The feast is prepared. Come celebrate with us. I said that wrong. Is the king saying it? Come celebrate with me. I'm your king. No better. Verse 5. But they made light of it. If, you know, it's a figure of speech. It wasn't a big deal. Some have other things to do. They're going to work in their farm. They're going to work in their business. Verse 6, some are so offended at the invitation, they kill the messengers. Why would anybody do that? Not okay. We go into verse 7. This is letter C in your notes. The king will not tolerate that. He sends out his armies to destroy the murderers because there's no place for that in his kingdom. His son still deserves to be honored. And the wedding feast is happening now. People rejected the invitation, but the feast is still ready. We're not going to reschedule. So the king sends out more messengers. Here's the third invitation. This invitation is to everybody. Go to the highways and byways. Invite them all, bad and good. My son needs to be celebrated. By God's grace, at the end of verse 10, the wedding hall was filled with guests. Amen. That almost seems like a natural end to the parable, but it's not the end. Verse 11, now the king is celebrating with his people and he's looking around the feast and he sees someone without the appropriate attire. Without a wedding garment. He approaches this man. He approaches him gently. He calls him friend. Friend, how did you come here to celebrate my son for such an important occasion without the proper attire? And the man has no defense. He's speechless. And there's no excuse for celebrating the king in an improper fashion, the king's son in an improper fashion. The man is removed from the wedding feast immediately. In a harsh way, he goes to a place, we see this phrase throughout the Gospels, it is not a pretty picture, the place of outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 14 is the key to the parable. Many are called, but few are chosen. And I... I I don't know if you're struggling with this, but I, I struggled with this parable for years. How are the two parts connected? 
Why would the king, shouldn't the king have been blessed that people came and not lashed out in anger at the man dressed inappropriately? Shouldn't the king have been more understanding? It was clearly a last minute invitation. Did that man have time to go home and get wedding garments? If it was the highways and byways, was he even wealthy enough to afford wedding garments? Why would the king be so mad? Are there two different truths? It's a parable. There's one truth. There's one thing we're pointing to. And so if it was just verses 1 through 10, I know I, speaking for myself, would come up with the wrong conclusion. I wouldn't come up with the conclusion Jesus says, the conclusion of the parable, what this parable is supposed to remind us about the kingdom, many are called but few are chosen. The first part of the parable and the second part of the parable are about the truth, many are called but few are chosen. So everything we're looking at today, we have to keep reminding ourselves, this is where Jesus is leading us in this parable. And I think before we get into that, Maybe we should define that word called because um, some of us are very proudly reformed. We've got the beard and everything. And so we reformers love the word called. Maybe our first thought of the word called goes to a verse like Romans 8.30. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Called, he justified, and he's going to glorify. The idea of predestination. Before the world was created, God knew his people, chose them, not because of any good they did, but purely an act of God's amazing grace. Usually in the New Testament, the word called has points us to that truth of predestination. Context matters when we interpret God's word. And if we look at this, many are called, but few are chosen. The word chosen is really the word that's connected to predestination in this verse. This word called does not have the same meaning as the word called connected to our word for predestination that we see so much in the Bible. This word called is more closely connected to what we'll call in a lot of our theology books, the gospel call. So the, the predestination call is maybe in the theology word books we'll call it the effectual call, the effective call. The Holy Spirit is going to do his work in God's people. The gospel call is different. The gospel call is the work that you and I do as children of God where we call out the gospel. We proclaim the truth of the gospel. We are sinners. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Our call as sinners is to repent and proclaim him as Lord. So we see the gospel call all throughout the Bible. Sometimes the gospel call leads to tons of people being saved, like Acts chapter 2. Peter proclaims the gospel message, calling people to repent, and 3,000 people are saved. Sometimes the gospel call, like in Acts chapter 21, Paul says, repent and believe, and he gets thrown in prison. Sometimes it works wonders. Sometimes God's will is a different way. So the gospel call does not always mean everybody who hears it is going to be saved. And we all know that from example, right? 
we probably shared the gospel with people that rejected it. Maybe we can look back at our lives. I, people shared the gospel with me a thousand times before I finally repented. There's a difference between the gospel call and the call close to our idea of predestination. If you struggle with that, please come and talk to us afterwards. We'd love to open the scripture with you. Let me make a plug for our Sunday school book. The uh, Wayne Grudem's theology book has a wonderful, like six or seven page chapter where he beautifully explains the difference between the two and shows different verses to help you understand. Just amazing chapter. Um, so we're, we're looking at this idea, verse 14, many are called, few are chosen. We can look at the life of Jesus to see up to this point in the gospel how true this is in Jesus' life himself. How many times did Jesus proclaim the gospel to call on people to repent and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees did not respond appropriately and they responded with hatred. Keep seeing that idea. So as we look at the truth of this gospel, this, excuse me, this, this parable, this parable reminds us many, many people repeatedly hear the gospel message. The unfortunate truth is not everybody who hears it repents. And in the grand scope of things, there's many that hear it, but of that many, unfortunately, only a few respond appropriately. And that last part, how, how is that connected? As we repent, it is a total understanding that I don't come bringing anything to the table. I don't come in my works. I don't come in my way. I come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if I have the audacity to be in, to attempt to get into the wedding, not God's way, I'm not welcome and I would be This, as I was preparing for this sermon and, and reading uh, commentaries and listening to sermons, I heard this one sermon blew me away. And I'm taking notes like crazy. And afterwards, I looked at my notes. And I said, I, I've got to base the sermon on this. This is great. And I prayed over it. I looked at it the next day and I went, oh, it's allegory. It was really neat, but I think he interpreted it a little wrong. It's about the one point. I can't turn the sermon into an allegory. That would be wrong. So now for the last few minutes, I'm going to turn the sermon into an allegory. Um, as we look at different things, maybe break apart a few things, we have to keep going back to the fact this points us to the truth. Many are called, but few are chosen. So if you want to flip your outline over under Roman numeral three, let's look a little bit at the attitude of those that were outside the wedding. Some of those that were called, but were not chosen. In verse five, we see a preoccupied attitude. They're invited to the wedding, but they don't want to come 
because they have other things to do. All the weddings today, thanks, your highness, but that field's not going to plow itself. I'd love to come today. Wow, that's so special. Thank you for the invitation, but got to do my numbers. My budget needs to be in line. Repent and believe in Jesus. Yeah, that sounds great, but then you got to go to church on Sunday and I like football. Follow Jesus. Uh, you know, it sounds good. It sounds like a nice guy and a smart guy, but that whole take up the cross thing? I've got this plan for my life and it doesn't include the cross. This is not a, I hate Jesus. This is not a, how dare you bring me Jesus. This could be an, I really like Jesus. He's a great philosopher. He's a great thinker. That whole love other stuff, great. His sacrificial attitude, great. Doing miracles to serve people, great. One way. Got other things to do. Maybe I'll believe in Jesus later. But for right now, focus is here. And how many of us can say that you shared the gospel with somebody like that? They didn't hate it. They didn't hate you. They even believe what you said. They had better things to do. All those years teaching at the Christian high school, I can't tell you how many students said, I I'm sure Jesus is the right way. I know all the other things don't make sense. I'm sure Christianity's right. Evolution can't be true. Buddha can't be true. I I'm sure it's right, but I don't want it. I've counted the cost. And I'm going to go in a different direction. Some people that reject, in their minds, they just have better things to do. Letter B, the attitude of those outside the wedding, they hate the message. They hate the son. And how many of us can, can attest to people in our lives, you bring up the name Jesus and the venom comes right away. How dare you talk about that man in my He's not accepting, he's not tolerant. I want nothing to do. And there'll be some that hear the call and hate it with every fiber of their being. And again, by God's grace, some of us in this room can say, that was me. And God did a work in my life and changed. Praise the Lord for that. Let her see pride. How's that proud? He came in not wearing wedding garments. Let's play a game. The Bible doesn't say this, and, and history doesn't give a whole lot of credence to this necessarily. But let's assume this king was fair. And let's assume in this king's being fair that he had at the entrance to the wedding wedding garments for those that were not dressed appropriately. 
I went to a meeting once. It was a very fancy meeting. I did not know it was a very fancy meeting. It was a tie required meeting. I did not know it was a tie required meeting. I came in. They said, sir, you need to wear a tie. I said, sir, I didn't bring a tie. I was dressed like a bum. So they took me to this back, and they had this box of ugly ties. So then I went into the meeting dressed like a bum with an ugly tie. I was now allowed into the meeting. They had a way for me to get in the meeting, being unprepared. Let's assume this was a similar situation and that the king had things. So now there are people maybe that had on the garments and there are the people that didn't have on garments. Because again, people were invited from the highways and byways. So here comes the man. Sir, you need to come in wearing this garment. You're not dressed appropriately. Put this on. I don't need that, thank you. I'm just fine the way I am. On it. I want the benefits of the wedding on my terms. I want, that heaven thing sounds way better than the alternative. So I want heaven, but I want it my way. I want to play a part. That whole thing, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, don't like that. I want to play a part. I want to have some reason to pat myself on the back for getting in. So I want Jesus plus something in me. So I can have my clothes and come in my righteousness. Again, how many of us can say, we've shared the gospel with somebody, yeah, I don't think I'm that bad of a guy. I don't think I need Jesus. Yeah, I, I, I want to work my way. I want to earn favor on my own before God. And so we're on the same page. That, that, that legalist attitude that tries to earn your way into heaven, that can be both selfish and unselfish. But what I mean by that is it can be selfish in the sense I want the glory for myself, I want to do all these good things to get right before God. It can be unselfish because how many of us know people that are rejecting Christ as Savior, but they're the nicest people in the world? They, they would sacrifice anything for you. They, they would literally give you the clothes off their back. They're so kind, they're so warm, they're so welcome. They put some of us Christians to shame. But they reject Jesus. They're still coming, even though it's a selfless legalism, it's a their way into heaven legalism. That won't do it. We only come before the king clothed in his righteousness. Let's look at the king, Roman numeral four. Keeping in mind again the purpose of the parable, many are called, few are chosen. The king is long-suffering. Look through back, back at that parable, three different invitations. How many of us would stop at one? Not would, excuse me. How many of us have stopped at one? We shared the gospel with someone, they rejected it. I tried. Did my best. I prayed, said the right thing. They said no. What can I do? It's long-suffering. 
Our king is just. The king could not tolerate murder in his kingdom. That would not make him loving. A just king upholds the laws of the kingdom. You want a king that knows his laws and upholds his laws. You don't want a fickle king that changes all the time. Part of us wants the merciful king, not if we've been offended. If I do wrong to the king, I want to be merciful to me. If, the, if somebody does something wrong to my wife, I'm not praying for mercy. King, punish him with everything in your kingdom. Come down on him. Now I'm crying justice. This king is completely, fairly, consistently just. In the heart of the king, there's probably a better word than honoring. Pastor Brian would have had all three words have the same letter. I can't do that. The king prioritizes his son. Everything in this parable the king did was about the glory and praise of my son deserves my son deserves praise my son deserves everybody in his kingdom honoring and worshiping pastor brian does the preaching schedule great job with it you know so i'm on the list every x number of weeks Sometimes I look at the text that I get. Yes. Sometimes I look at the text and I go, okay. That series we just did on worldview, I wanted every one of them. Didn't get to close the worldview series. I got this. My first thought, okay. I've been studying it, studying it. I won. This parable, as well as any, points to the cross. Look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 3. It should be on the screen if I did that right. Romans 3, verses 20 through 26. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed. We're going to see that word righteousness over and over again. If you're unfamiliar with that, righteousness means rightness with God. God, God, uh, his perfections, okay? The righteousness of God, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means the removal of wrath by the offering of a perfect gift. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, look at this last phrase, that he might be just and the justifier. 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. I talked about pre, uh, predestination a little bit. And sometimes people hear predestination and their first thought goes, that's not fair. God only chooses some people. What's fair about that? Folks, we don't want fair. If God's going to be fair, we are all destined to eternal damnation. This verse tells us very clearly we have all fallen short of God's righteous standard. So if we are crying unto God for fairness, we're done. God's better than fair. He's just. Perfect justice would say we get punished for the wrong we've done. God goes beyond perfect justice. And God sets up a system, a system that involves Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his perfection, his righteousness, where he takes our punishment in full through the act on the cross, the perfect lamb of God suffers in our place, takes the wrath that we deserve and takes it in full. And not only does he take the wrath we deserve, the punishment we deserve, but in this amazing transaction, he shares his righteousness with his people. Those that God predestined, the chosen, those that would not just hear the gospel call, but in God's perfect timing, have their hearts changed to where they would repent and believe and accept Jesus alone as Lord and Savior, those children of God get to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In that act, we come into the wedding feast. In that act, God is still just. He sets up the system as an act of love and long-suffering. He fulfills fully his just standards. And in the cross, Jesus gets the glory. And we honor the worship of the Son. What a blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we evaluate our lives, we are, are well aware that We are lawbreakers. That we have sinned repeatedly against your holy and righteous standards. We recognize if we were to come clothed in our own good deeds, it wouldn't be enough. We recognize our repeated rebellions against you. We recognize we would not come before you if you weren't long-suffering. We couldn't come before you if you didn't provide the righteous, pure clothing. We couldn't come before you if we weren't chosen. We can't come before you if we put other things as more important and treat your gospel as a light thing can't come before you if we reject Christ and come in our own merits. But by your mercy and grace, 
we can come to your throne boldly as we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we're thankful that Jesus paid our debt in full. We're thankful for the beautiful words Jesus proclaimed on the cross, it is finished. We're thankful that we serve a risen Lord who is right now seated at the right hand of your throne, making intercession for us. We're thankful that Jesus, as an act of love, sent his Holy Spirit to give us new life, fill us and empower us for service. To open our eyes to the truths of your word. To give us the, the purity to seek that unity we're praying for this month. There are so many reasons for us to look to the cross and honor the Son. We pray that this parable would remind us of, of the beautiful truth that those that you've called unto yourself will glorify the Son, and even those who reject in this earth will ultimately bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We all have people around us that are currently rejecting Christ for some reason. We beg you from the pit of our existence that you would send your Holy Spirit to change their hearts. That you would grant them that gift of repentance that they would proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.